Our current sermon series is entitled, Seeing Jesus Through the Eyes Of. We've chosen different people who encountered Jesus. Last week, we saw Jesus through the eyes of a little boy who brought his lunch and saw Jesus do a miracle by feeding 5,000 people with his little lunch. Today, we're going to look kind of in the opposite direction, direction at the Jewish leaders, how they saw Jesus and why he was such a threat to them, why they brought out, he brought out the worst in them rather than the best in them. For them, a crowd of 5,000 was a threat. For that boy, a crowd of 5,000 was a challenge. The best known word in the Hebrew language is the word shalom, which we translate as peace. It's really a much bigger word, bigger idea than simply peace. It contains all the goodness that we long for that completes our life. It is deep-seated peace. Did you know that the word Islam, which describes a great religion in the world, and the word Muslim have that word shalom at their heart. It's built on the idea of peace. Ironically, so is the word Jerusalem, the city of peace. A part of the world that has hardly known peace ever, and certainly doesn't now. So much irony in the way that word is used. Israel's location on the globe is that it is a bridge between continents, between Africa and Asia and Europe. It was a bridge between the great countries of Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Persia and then Europe through the Ottoman Empire as well as Egypt in many times its history. Humanity, science tells us, began in Africa. But civilization, as we understand it, began in this area, what is known as the Fertile Crescent, and this is where humans, as far as we can tell from archaeological studies, where humans first sat down and settled in to farm the land. Because these areas are dominated by more fertile valleys that are watered by great rivers that are year-round. The part in the east on your right is the area we know as Mesopotamia, area between rivers, that's what the name Mesopotamia means, between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers where many of the great civilizations began. Down to the left is Egypt, which is possible because of the great river Nile. The rest of the area around it may be desert and arid, but that area allowed for farming and it had fertile ground. And in the middle, the area we know as Palestine and Lebanon, 
was dominated by a valley which includes the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea. And that valley was also a very fertile place compared to the lands to the east. So that became known as the Fertile Crescent. Civilizations began there. The farming of crops began there. The domesticating of cattle and other animals began there. And cities began there. Also, great empires began there. So this area is critical to the whole history of the human race. And the bridge right in the middle is the land of Israel. But it was never really strong compared to the other lands. And it became a puppet used by one empire after another as the battles for power went on between the countries to the east and the countries to the southwest, Egypt, and then ultimately up into Turkey and Europe. Israel has always been the battlefield between so isn't it ironic that its greatest word is peace, shalom. The Old Testament part of the story of Israel begins with slavery in Egypt. And then they come back into the land. They come into the land that God had promised them. And they claim that land. It took a lot of battles to do that. But ultimately, they establish a kingdom which culminated in David at the high point of Israel's kingdom. But do you know, that kingdom period of independence, I'm going to put independence in quotes, because it, it only became independent because the, the great empires to the east and southwest uh, were relatively unstable at that time. And so Israel could have its great kingdom period but that only lasted for about 500 years in the whole history of Israel. After that period of time, we have the captivity, the Babylonian captivity. Then the Persians took over from Babylon. And then the Greeks, under Alexander the Great, defeated the Persians. And the Greeks were the world power, but Alexander died in his 20s. And the Greek empire was divided among four of his descendants. And that gave Israel a chance for a little blossoming of independence in what is known as the Maccabean Revolt, which took place in 167 and 144. And Judas Maccabees was a great leader. And this is celebrated in the Feast of Hanukkah, which Jews today celebrate with the menorah and the eight candles. That period of independence uh, lasted for uh, just a little over 100 years before the Romans, who had defeated the Greeks, came in and squashed Jewish independence. That happened 67 BC when Pompey defeated Jerusalem. And then they took over and they ruled for a while through those kings that we know as Herod. And, uh, and they, but they were in charge. So 67 BC, that's over here. And then 70 AD, see that's just a little over 100 years. 
that was a period of great, great turmoil. And in 70 AD, there were, things were so bad that the Romans destroyed the temple and the Jewish uh, power structure. And Israel went into oblivion for generations after that. Right in the middle of this period between the Romans coming in and the Romans demolishing the place, that's when Jesus appeared. I think one of the things we miss when we study the New Testament is there's so much focus on Jesus and the people following. We get clues about the turmoil in society, but it's not focused on. We get little indicators if we know the history of how, how awful the situation was and how it was developing. There are a number of names of leaders in Israel, and I'd like to tell you who these people are. Um, these are some of the names of leaders given in the New Testament. We are going to say a lot about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Bible also mentions the Herodians over on the right. And the Herodians are people who aligned with King Herod. And King Herod was a half-breed king puppet of the Romans. So they were not liked much by the people around them. And so we have one place we're going to read today where the Pharisees and the Herodians got together against Jesus. Pharisees and Herodians didn't get together on anything. But they agreed that Jesus was a problem. On that second line, you have the scribes. Now, scribes, sometimes translated in our Bibles as lawyers, they were lawyers of the book, the Old Testament, the Torah. They were the experts in the law. In other words, in, in a sense, they were Pharisees uh, to the nth degree. They were extra Pharisaic Pharisees. And then the Sadducees and the priests are part of, a, of a, another social group. And the Pharisees were more middle class and the Sadducees were upper class. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And uh, then the zealots over on the right, that, they're just mentioned briefly. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples is called Simon the Zealot. That's very important. Sanhedrin is mentioned. Sanhedrin was a, a ju judicial group that met. It was made up of some Sadducees, some Pharisees, and other leadership people. And they met to handle uh, local um, arguments between tribes and peoples and, and under the Roman authority. And then finally, I had tax collectors down there because they're kind of a special breed of people who cooperated with the Roman government, were not liked much by the Jewish people. So that gives you a feel for the kinds of leaders that we encounter in the New Testament. Now, Sadducees and Pharisees, if we just look at them, they both came out of that period of time when the Maccabean revolt gave, gave a kind of pseudo-independence 100 years before Jesus. And during that time, the Jews developed two leadership groups. The Pharisees were leaders in the law, and the chief Pharisees were scribes, so they're most associated with the law. The Sadducees were leaders in the temple, 
and they were priests, and there was a whole tribe of priests and Levites. So you see how the focus was either on the law or the temple. They did not like each other too much because the Sadducees were very much political and they cooperated with the government. That was the uh, Maccabean uh, uh, government at that time and then later with the Romans. Whereas the Pharisees were very focused on Jewish independence and differentness. So here are these leaders kind of indiscriminate. We're not sure who is who. Uh, they both wore distinguishable dress. The Sadducees wanted to look like the aristocratic high priests they were. And the Pharisees wanted to look as Jewish as possible, kind of like Orthodox Jews in our day uh, in New York City. And we're going to read a few New Testament accounts about uh, Jesus' interactions with these leaders, try to find out what they saw when they watched people flock to him. What upset them so much about Jesus? We'll start with Mark chapter 12. And uh, there's a parable that Jesus tells about a vineyard owner who rented, got his, his vineyard working and planted the vines and got the press in there, and then he rented it out. And he looked for a crop at the end of that time. And uh, they, when he sent people to get the, the rent money that was earned by the tenant farmers, they rejected them. And finally, his own son they killed. Obvious parable about what's happening around Jesus. So beginning at verse 8, so they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they realized that he had told this parable against them, they wanted to arrest him. But they feared the crowd, so they left him and went away. Who were they? Well, verse 13 says, Then they sent to him some Pharisees and some Herodians. So the first group was a little different, but they sent this mixed bag of people that uh, um, had very different views. So whatever answer Jesus gave was going to be wrong. That's a trap they set for him. And uh, these Pharisees and Herodians came to trap him. And in what he said, they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are sincere that you show deference to no one. They believed he was insincere. And uh, for you do not regard people with partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, this is what Jesus came into the world to talk about. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You could see that it's a trap in the supercharged atmosphere of uh, Roman occupation. And uh, Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius, that's a common coin that they had, and let me see it. And they brought him one. Then he said to them, whose head is this? And whose title? They answered Caesar. 
Then he had his famous statement, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. If he had ended there, that would have answered the question. Pay your taxes. The uh, Pharisee, the Herodians would have been happy. The Pharisees would have been mad. Give the things, Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But he added this, and give to God the things that are God's. Whose image is this? And he was looking at them, and he was asking, whose image are you? Have you given God what he deserves? So he turned it around, and they didn't know how to respond. They were utterly amazed. Then going on in verse 18, some Sadducees, oh, he was talking to the Pharisees and the Herodians, now he's talking to the Sadducees. And we're told by uh, the Mark, the gospel writer, that uh, they say, the Sadducees say there's no resurrection. We could talk more about that, but that's the truth. They didn't believe in the resurrection in the afterlife, as was taught in the Bible of the Jewish people. They were secular Jews, in a sense. And, and they brought this question up about uh, a, a, a man dies, and uh, he leaves his wife but no child, and then someone marries his widow and raises the children, and then there were seven brothers, the first married, he died, left no children. This kind of super puzzle they gave in their society. Who gets the inheritance in the afterlife? Now remember, these, this is coming from people who don't believe in an afterlife. So they're kind of saying the afterlife that you and the Pharisees believe in is totally illogical. And then Jesus uh, responded by giving them a true interpretation of what's going to happen to us in the afterlife. Okay, so he's talked to the Pharisees. He's talked to the Herodians. Now look at verse 28. One of the scribes came near. Now remember, the scribes are the super Pharisees. These are the guys who really know the law. And so they ask him, which commandment is first of all? And then Jesus said, first, hear, O Israel. He quotes the Shema, the great statement of Jewish faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well, these guys made their lives, their living, their place in society out of finding other commandments. I mean, they were a commandment a week. And some even... Jews today live by some of the commandments made by those scribes. They were interpreting the law and making it more and more binding on people. And Jesus said, God only asks two things of you. Love him with your whole heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Wow. They didn't know what to do with that. And it says in verse um, 30, 34, and no one dared to ask him any questions after that. So this is a kind of a, a journey through the leadership as Jesus confronts them all. You find this same pattern in other gospel texts. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 and 11, 
he sat at dinner in the house with many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with Jesus and his disciples. And uh, he, he was just indiscriminate as to who he had company with. And the Pharisees saw this. They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then he follows this up. Matthew 16, uh, we have a, a, a text that, verse 11, how could you fail to perceive that I was not speaking about bread when I talked about feeding the 5,000, but I was talking about another kind of bread, the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You know, un unleavened bread is bread without the yeast. And Jesus is saying to these guys, who are especially the Pharisees, that were super scrupulous about keeping the details of the, of the law, the kosher laws. And uh, Jesus said, you guys yourselves are impure. Whatever you touch is impure. You are leavened. Well, this was not a day he made a lot of friends. In Mark chapter 2, uh, when you get a chance, you can do this at home. There's a whole interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. And then in Matthew 23, there is a, a, a chapter in which uh, paragraph after paragraph, Jesus says, woe to the scribes and the Pharisees. He's focusing on these people. And there are, I think, uh, about 10 different woes that he has in that chapter. And the final uh, passage I want to mention is John 11. In verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus, believed, what, what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told on him and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees. Remember, the chief priests are part of the Sadducee group and the Pharisees, they, these guys were not allies, but they were both offended by Jesus. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council and said, what are we to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. To me, that, that is a key summary of the fear of Jesus that these people had. We tend to papercoat the Roman rule at this time. But the Roman way of operating and controlling the nations that they, can, that they had subjugated was through fear. They make an example of people and say, this will happen to you if you don't get with the program. In 63, they were cruel in the coming of Pompey. And then in Jesus' day, remember one of the disciples was called Simon the Zealot? The Zealots were a group of revolutionaries and they had made a pact that they were going to overthrow the Roman government so the Pharisees and the Sadducees saw the zealots as a threat there were some zealots who were super zealous they were known as Sicarii 
which means uh, the dagger people. And they had hidden daggers, and they would go on suicide missions and assault people in authority. And it would create chaos. And as, as, as I thought about this and the fact that Jesus lived right in the middle of this period that led to the final Jewish rebellion in 66 AD. That's just 30 years after Jesus. And then the temple destruction in 70 AD. The temple has never been rebuilt since then. That's how completely the, the Romans destroyed it. And then the Jews held out on a, in a fortress called Masada. Maybe some of you have seen this. It's notable history. The Romans assaulted it year after year after year. They actually used thousands of Jewish prisoners to fight against Jews. And finally, there were 963, Josephus tells us the number, of people who committed mass suicide at Masada rather than be conquered by the Romans. And who lived through all that? Two women and five children were left alive. That was an awful day. Kind of like what the Palestinians are suffering today. Kind of like what the Jewish people suffered a week ago in that surprise attack. One of their concerns, the Pharisees and Sadducees, that was Jesus was gathering people at a time when a crowd was dangerous. And that he was really a hidden political radical trying to gather a Hamas-type group around him, a rebellion, a Roman reaction would fall back on the whole society. 5,000 people together, that was a big red flag. That scared the life out of them. So Jesus was a threat to their fragile existence as a subject people, particularly to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, carefully established leadership roles. Both the Pharisees and Sadducees had feathers that Jesus could easily ruffle. Ruffle, ruffle, which is a ruffle of feathers. Now, the Pharisees had their Jewish ritual feathers, and the Sadducees, their priestly I am important feathers. And Jesus saw through them all and unmasked their hypocrisy. Wow, this could not be tolerated. So back in whenever it started, I was aware of Jesus Christ Superstar. I was kind of fascinated with it because Christians were so angry about it. Um, it was first a, 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 a musical. I mean, it was just done as music. And then it was played on Broadway rather awkwardly. But in 1973, a film came out. And I'll, honestly, that, that film knocked me over. I, I, was, I went with a negative feeling because actually it told the story through the eyes of Judas. How can that be good? And it was written by secular, not Christian people. But I found so many moments 
when watching that film, I went back in this week and I, uh, I rewatched a lot of it and it was, uh, I actually cried at several places about what it said about Jesus. This is in a final scene. This is just a picture. I'm not going to show you a clip from the movie because I don't want to be in jail. But, but the, the, this is supposed to be the high priest and Caiaphas and Annas talking, but they're surrounded by other Sanhedrin and, and Pharisees, Sadducees. And they're looking at the crowd following Jesus, and they hear Jesus Christ Superstar, which is in the background. And, and it's building, and they're, they're just scared about their position. And so I'm going to read you a lyric. Good Caiaphas, the council waits for you. The Pharisees and priests are here for you. Caiaphas says, ah, gentlemen, you know why we're here. We've not much time and quite a problem here. And then you hear Hosanna, superstar from the crowd, Hosanna, superstar. And they say, listen to that howling mob of blockheads in the street. A trick or two with lepers and the whole town's on his feet. He is dangerous. I still remember the bass voice of Caiaphas saying, he is dangerous. And over and over again, he is dangerous. The man in town right now to whip up some support, a rabble-rousing mission that I think we must abort. He is dangerous. Look, Caiaphas, they're right outside our yard. Quick, Caiaphas. Go call the Roman guard. No, wait, we need a more permanent solution to our problem. What then to do about Jesus of Nazareth? Miracle wonder man, hero of fools. No riots, no army, no fighting, no slogans. We dare not leave him to his own devices. His half-witted fans will get out of control. But how can we stop him? His glamour increases by leaps every moment. He's top of the pole. I see bad things arising. The crowd crowned him king, which the Romans would ban. I see blood and destruction, our elimination because of one man. Blood and destruction because of one man. Our elimination because of one man. What then to do about this Jesus mania? How do we deal with a carpenter king? Where do we start with the man who is bigger than John was when John did his baptism thing? Fools, you have no perception. The stakes we are gambling are frighteningly high. We must crush him completely. So like John before him, this Jesus must die. For the sake of the nation, this Jesus must die. Must die. Must die. This Jesus must die. So like John before him, this Jesus must die. This Jesus must die. That's how that scene ends. As Jesus interacted with the Sadducees and the Pharisees throughout his ministry, he could look into their eyes. He could look into their hearts. And he could see their murderous hate for him. And yet, he still moved toward his destiny, toward where his ministry was taking him. So I'm going to read from Luke chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face, that phrase, he set his face 
to go to Jerusalem. You married men, you ever see your wife set her face? You know there's no arguing, no arguing after that. He set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for his arrival, but they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. He set his face, his face was set. I see Jesus looking out over the city where his sworn enemies are waiting for him, setting traps for him. I see Jesus looking out over Israel today with all the plots people are setting for each other with the murderous hate that is just going to escalate. I see Jesus looking out over your impossibly messy life. His face is set. Lord, how, 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 how could this all happen? How could your heart be that big? How could you go beyond all of the rejections of your people throughout history and still reach out with love with a solution, with an eternal solution. How can you see in the chaos of our lives the people who still reflect your image? We thank you for Jesus setting his face on us. In your name.